So always I think about this getting together as a time when we can practice contemplative techniques and renew our um, familiarity with paying attention firsthand to what's arising moment to moment. Uh, and we, sp we spend the rest of the time talking about what it would be like if we could pay attention all the time, clearly making decisions out of a place of thoughtfulness. And today, I thought that we'll maybe sit a little bit longer. I would, I'll be, uh, I won't be back for another month. And I thought, I got up this morning and I had actually in front of me, I have actually a bunch of papers of things that I was going to talk about. And then someone in my family called and said, you need to turn on the TV. There's big news this morning. So the big news, in case you don't know the big news, is that uh, the uh, district attorney of the uh, Southern District of New York has uh, filed an indictment. It's a civil indictment against uh, Mr. Trump and his family for um, what they see as civil crimes. Um, not not uh, uh, different from it's it's a civil crime. They they never have uh, uh, it goes to a judge to be adjudicated. But there's a it's um, about um, fraudulence in the um, in the company that they've run for many years that the Trump family has run for many years, and so. My, someone in my family called and said, wow, there's a big news going on. So I, they said, check the TV. So I checked the TV and immediately got uh, pulled into it because it's dramatic. And leaving aside uh, uh, what anybody's politics are, uh, because seriously, you, I have friends and family on both sides of what's referred to as the aisle. Uh, to hear what's happening is important. So I watched, and I do have feelings. I'm not neutral about the situation. And I realized that it was very dramatic. And then uh, I turned it off when I came to be here. And I thought, wow. <laughs> I Normally on a Wednesday morning, I like to sit a little bit. And I have prepared a whole bunch of things that I want to talk about this morning, which are and really, I thought, interesting and important dharma. But I realized that my mind was all stirred up from all of this. How many people, let me see if I can see everybody. Put your hand up if you knew about this news, that uh, some yes and some no. Anyway, my husband, who died a year and a half ago, loved to watch sensational news on TV. And... Uh, since he was in the final months of his illness, I say, really, why do you do this? It's so upsetting to the mind. He said, no, no, it's like a thriller. It's like going to the movies. It keeps me really interested. Who done it and what's going to happen? Because it stirs up feelings in you when you see that. So then I thought, well, what should I do now? Can I talk about what I was going to talk about? But I see, first of all, I see I may be delivering that news to a lot of you and you don't know about it, or perhaps you're not as involved in the news as I am. So then I thought, 
what about, I said, I'll have to sit down and, and organize myself. So I did. Then I thought, you know, that's what we'll do. We'll sit down and organize ourselves. And we'll talk about that the important piece in Dharma practice is not to not have feelings about what goes on, because we do have feelings about what goes on, to make a space in the mind in between feelings arising and action happening. The instructions of practice, somebody said, maybe we should call this the practice of waiting. Uh, the chief admonition to oneself is wait. Somebody has actually suggested that and said, before you say anything, you should say, you should think to yourself, why am I talking? <laughs> wait, you know, this is an acronym for why am I talking? So just before you start to say something, why am I talking? And maybe also, what am I saying? And why am I saying it? And towards what end? And what's my intention? So I thought we would do a slightly longer meditation this morning that I would do as a guided meditation for a while or intermittently. I'll, and, I, and I was going to go through what I thought were various categories of meditative techniques that we learn. You would practice, if you're taking piano lessons, you'd have to do, or you'd want to do, scales every day when you start just to warm up. So I thought we'd do a number of different practices for calming the mind and waking it up at the same time. And then we'll talk about how do you figure out in a day in, in this era fraught with news and new news. How do you make good decisions without bias and without confusion in the mind? So I thought we'd do a few things, maybe a lot of things, that are meditative techniques to end confusion and it'll be a compendium. Okay, here we go. Take three long breaths in and out purposely pulling in the breath a little bit longer than usual and breathing the breath out a little bit longer than usual. might find that your mind and your body feels both relaxed and waked up from that. Perhaps you feel like taking a few more breaths. That's fine. Your body will continue to breathe, of course, all day and all night on its own. Adjusting the rate of respiration to keep you comfortable. You go for a walk, your body will breathe 
more frequently. When you sleep calmly, your body breathes more slowly. Sometimes when I think about that, that's amazing to have a body that's um, really so on its own with its own miraculous wisdom that causes it, while you don't do anything at all, to digest and to breathe and to stabilize your blood pressure and to remember and to recognize just to be alive it's an amazing thing when people come to their first meditation class beginning lessons in mindfulness, it's likely that the instructor will say, as you sit, notice that your breath on its own is coming in and out. You don't need to breathe in a special way. And let your attention rest with the breath as it goes through its whole cycle of breathing in and then breathing out. The body pauses for a moment and then it breathes in and out again. Often the first instructions for mindfulness are given about attending to the breath. Notice that by itself the breath comes in and out. And try to stay with it, the instructions will say. Sometimes the instructions include count the next 10 breaths as a way of helping the attention stay with the breath. Some people enjoy that. Some people find it distracting to count. When I count, I count on my fingers so I don't have to count. I, I have my hands and my lap and I just open my fingers one by one if I want to count. I'll sit quietly, try to be just with the breath. Just the breath of awareness. You can say to yourself, in and out in your mind, to help you stay attentive to the breath.
I'll count ten so we can all practice quietly. Probably there are other things that happen in your attention as you rest primarily with the breath. There may be sounds in your room, maybe sounds outside. You may be aware that there are parts of your body that maybe are stiff, maybe you want to relax your shoulders a little bit or adjust your posture a little bit. When the intention settles down into this body right now, letting go of all the other things that attention is distracted by, the body becomes more clear. So if you discover that your neck is stiff or your shoulders not comfortable, aware that you're doing it, Adjust yourself a little bit. Move your head back or forth. Find a comfortable, more comfortable place. And then let go of that. 
for a little while. Bring the attention to the breath, to the breath at your nostrils. And feel it in the different places in the body. But if you particularly bring it to your nostrils and notice how the breath feels going in through your nose, you can feel it in the back of your throat. Sometimes people say uh, they can feel the breath on their upper lip as the breath goes out. Not everybody has the same sensitivity about that. But notice the breath as well as you can in the nostrils and in the back of your throat. See if you begin to notice that the breath, the in-breath does not become the out-breath. The in-breath goes in and it disappears. And then an out-breath starts. There are two parts to each breath. It goes in, it goes out. And when you feel that, you can actually feel a little pause in the middle after the in-breath goes in and the out-breath goes out. Sometimes when you bring your attention really intensively to the nostrils, begin to feel um, little tingles around your face. Not everybody. Some people feel it around on their face becomes more part of their awareness. Sometimes people say, when I start to meditate, my face starts to tingle. And my sense is that the face is always tingling. And when we start to meditate, we notice it. Since we've been using the nostrils as the locus of attention, move your attention to your rib cage. 
still breathing through your nose, but your rib cage becomes the center of your attention. And then you can feel that your ribs go out, out to the side and come back, and then they raise up and come down. That really your upper body moves out and in with each breath. Keeping your attention in that part of the body, count yourself again, 10 breaths. you find that sleepiness arises in your mind, you can open your eyes a little bit without looking around, without losing the attention to the breath. Some people, people who practice zazen sit for their whole meditation with their eyes just slightly open at the bottom. One of the things that it does is it keeps the attention in the present, in this room, in this now. Then move your attention around, down from your rib cage and around your hips and your bottom. The awareness of sitting. And let yourself be aware of the fact that you feel the chair or the pillow that you're sitting on or whatever you're sitting on more fully when you move your attention down around your lower torso, 
Sometimes people feel it as their belly pushing out or in. Depends on how you're sitting. But when you're thinking about your belly pushing out and in, then you discover that the awareness of the ribcage lifting and opening and coming back goes out of your attention. If you move your attention to a new place, that's what happens. You feel it there. And then just bring your attention to the whole periphery of your body as if with your eyes just looking down in front of you or your eyes closed, you can feel around the whole edge of your body from the top of your head, around your shoulders and down your arms and your back and your front and all the way through your legs. Like here's your body, whether it's sitting or lying down being cross-legged, even standing. Here's a breathing body. The point of all meditation practices that at the same time is at the same time to calm the body down and keep it worked up so that you don't fall asleep, so that you can discriminate clearly what to do in the next moment. It would be possible to say that the whole goal of meditation is to be able to meet each moment with clarity, with equanimity, and with intention to respond with kindness. For the last meditation technique for this morning, feeling your body sitting or lying down, breathing, in whichever place you've been paying attention, 
begin to make the prayer to yourself, the incantation. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. I think that even if you haven't heard that before, you would realize that its intention is, is to say, I'd like to go through my life meeting each moment as it truly is, meeting with kindness and discrimination, being able to choose wisely. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. Let's sit just maybe three minutes and repeat that to yourself. You can do it on your in-breath and your out-breath, or you can do it whenever you feel like. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend.
just before we open our eyes, think about what did you learn? What did you discover? What might you like to share with everybody else? And then when you're ready, open your eyes. What did you learn? Who would like to say something that they learned? Let's talk about it a little bit. What did you learn? What did you feel? What did you discover? Oh, Sylvia. Hi, Sylvia. Um, I have a question. So I know that we do sit in meditations all the time. Is that possible that like sometime in the walking meditation is better or like the standing meditation is better? Because sometimes I feel like my mind is going in all directions that, you know, I should switch my meditation practice or should I just stick with what my teacher prescribed for me? <laughs> <laughs> no, this is, no, that's a terrific question. So first of all, where are you in the world? I'm in Peninsula. So I live in uh, Bay Area. All right. Uh, so you're in the Bay Area. Actually, so the um, the instruction is uh, training your mind to be to uh, pay attention to whatever has arisen in it. The the real the the fundamental instruction is this is paying attention meditation is being attentive in all situations: standing, walking, sitting, lying down. And when we sit down and do a sitting meditation, the, the, we choose the breath because when you're sitting still and not moving around, and especially if you have your eyes closed, usually the breath is the most available thing to pay attention to. But you could be doing a walking meditation and be attending to your breath as you're walking back and forth. A reason to do a walking meditation is if you're sleepy, and you get up and you walk back and forth and you breathe in, in, in and out, out, out or in and out and in and out. You're walking to keep your body alert and to keep your mind from falling asleep. Also, there are some people who have back conditions that they can't sit long. They have to lie down and then they can do putting their hand on their belly and feeling the breath in and out. All those things are techniques. And mindfulness is a capacity to see clearly moment to moment what's happening. So it it's not only seeing what's happening, uh, like I'm looking at you and I'm delighted to meet a new person and I'm glad you asked that question. So I, I'm, I'm seeing you and I have delighted my mind and I'm thinking thoughts to explain to you. So all of those things are going on together. And that's fine. So I like to live mindfully where I know what's ever going on so I can respond to it appropriately. And periodically, I like to sit and or walk or lie down and do this one specific meditation to uh, bolster up, to strengthen the ability to see clearly, to get that muscle 
of discerning clearly what exactly is happening. If there's too much happening, the mind gets itself, the, the mind scatters itself because it's got too much. There's a little, a little bit of the analogy of I go to a gym. I belong to a gym and I go there with some regularity. And you work on machines or with weights in order to build up muscles and uh, and strengthen your back or whatever. I go there. But I don't live in the gym. So I do that maybe an hour, three or four times a week. And then I have it with me so that my body all week is strengthened. So to do a contemplative exercise like the one we just did is just to strengthen the mind. But it's a like it's like lifting weights so that the mind can discern. I'm discerning in and out and in and out. I'm training the discernment uh, uh, muscle. I'm also training the muscle of putting out of my mind anything that's extraneous at that point. And then I go, and then when I get up from my meditation, go out in the world, I hope to take that capacity of mind that sees and discerns and thinks about it, makes a decision, let's do that, makes it out of more clarity. Does that answer your question? Um, I was asking, like, you know, sometimes when I do sit in meditation, it's really hard for me. And when I start walking, sometimes like, I pay attention to my steps. So my mind has something to focus on it rather than sometimes something to focus on just the breath is hard for me on some days. So yeah. by that. all means to do walking instead. Okay. They're all doing the same thing. They're all exercises to strengthen, but including the last end of that where I say let's say to each other the same thing in and out may I meet this moment fully may I meet it as a friend may I meet this moment fully may I meet it as a friend let's say for everybody let's say for instance I'm in the supermarket and uh, I've, I've just bought my few things that I want to buy and I go to the checkout stand and the person in front of me has forgotten they're checking out and they forgot that they forgot two things and they say, all right, I have to go back and get them. So they run to get them. Meantime, they're taking a long time and they can't find it and they have to get some help to find it. Meantime, annoyance is arising in me because I'm getting later and later to get out. And maybe I have an appointment with the dentist to get a booster shot of my vaccine. And I start to feel annoyed. And But I can't do anything about it. And I, and I have enough mindfulness to know annoyance is arising. It's not going to do me any good. I'm not going to get out of here any faster. They'll probably give me the vaccine when I get there. Take a breath and just relax. So it's in order to keep my mind making good judgments in my life, I, I have a practice behind it that keeps my mind keeping it sta stable in its life. It's a very good question for you to ask, Sylvia said. I'm glad you're here and please ask anytime. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you. And Nancy had something to say. The part of the instruction at the end about meeting each moment and meeting it as a friend. Like you, my husband died a year and a half ago. I'm sorry. I have found that very, very painful, extremely. I'm a longtime practitioner. I know. I know that instruction, and yet, when the pain arises, I still want to avoid it. I want to turn away from it. 
I sometimes I can be with it and it's fine and I'm okay. Other times though, I have a knee jerk wanting to avoid it mm-hmm. and, and, and not only avoid, but not have it be a friend. Maybe then, Nancy, thank you. First of all, I'm sorry for your loss, really. Um, thank you. And it takes a long time. Yeah. It takes a long time. It's not about avoiding the pain, because my experience is that it happens all the time. That I, I think, and you probably think, oh, he would have liked this so much if he were here, or oh, this is a time the whole family's together. It would be great if he were here. And you feel it, and if you are, uh, and I feel for myself, and, and and for you, that I think this goes on forever. I think that's what happens with people, that we actually form. I'm happy to say, very strong bonds, and it's hard to get used to not having that there. What I discover for myself is it makes it has made. I think it's helped me stay more compassionate towards other people and myself because I realize it's a big deal. You know, it's a big deal. So it's not that, that it's not that I want to avoid feeling pain. I want to recognize it and I say, ah, oh, yeah, I wish you were here. And I, 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 you know, I tell my family when they're around, I wish dad were here, you know, that I keep him the way that a person stays, the way he stays alive for me is I am surrounded as I talk with you with all kinds of photos of him. I'm sure you are too, that you, you've got pictures in your house and stuff. So it's not about avoiding the pain. Um, for me, it's been more a question of knowing when it was time to go back and be able to interact more with other people and with my family and, uh, one of the things I was going to talk about today is uh, I've heard different people say, oh, yeah, I was going to tell a story, actually. This is what I've, you've helped me move on to these stories. So thank you very much. It's a Zen story about a Zen master who's got a bunch of students that, you know, as Zen masters do, that study with him and uh, live with him. It's an old Zen story. And uh, the son of the uh, Zen master dies. And the Zen master is sitting in his Zendo and and crying copiously and ongoingly. And it's worrying his students. And they say to him at some point, uh, you told us that, you know, everything that arises passes away and that death was okay and it happens to everybody. And he are crying away. And he said, well, it's right. Death happens to everybody. And I'm very sad. There isn't any reason why sadness shouldn't arise. Why should sadness not arise? It arises until it doesn't arise so terribly, so much. You know, I find it's the sadness, the sadness I think I can even be with. It's the, that pain of loneliness, mm-hmm. of, of missing him. Yeah. I wish I could be more friendly to that pain. I will work on it to be more friendly to it because I, I, I like hate it. it. I don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> no, you know what you've just done? You've just done 
the uh, gesture of compassion to self. This, by the way, for everybody, has to do with what do you do when you have pain? Some people are sitting with a terrible bad back or some people are sitting with some devastating news about something. But and it and when you when you realize it, you think, ah, and then I put my hand here, I say, sweetheart, you're in pain, you're in a lot of pain. And somehow uh, it may it it sounds peculiar, but I say to myself, sweetheart, it means I'm not making myself wrong for having the pain. So I don't have to think about that. Sweetheart, you're in a lot of pain. It's unpleasant. Everything that arises passes away. I know, but I wish this would pass away faster. Everything that <laughs> passes yeah. away. Take a breath. Take another breath. You'll be okay. And I honestly, I'm, I am compassionate for myself and for you, Nancy. Thank you, Sylvia. May you be well. It's for everybody. Whatever happens, say, whoa. Sweetheart. Then people say, why do you talk to yourself? You know, why do I need to have subtitles on what I'm saying? I speak English, you know. What about but sometimes it's like I didn't hear myself. I feel it in my body and then the feeling runs away with my, my emotions. To be able to say, wait a minute, sweetheart, you're in pain. Like I would to a child. And it'll get better. It'll pass. I don't know if it'll get better, it'll pass. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Maybe one more. I'll teach. I have some things I want to bring up, and then we'll talk again. Oh, Jeff, go, Jeff. Thank you, Sylvia. Um, I was. I've been sitting here thinking about the. So why do I? Why do I meditate? Why does anybody meditate? And um, I, you know, I also, I also fiddle around playing music and. Um, and why do you practice? Um, I'm I'm in the process of learning some uh, some rather on the scale of one to ten the three easy pieces from Chopin, <clears throat> but they're very complicated for a person of my my ability. So what you do is you pick out slowly one note at a time until you have it pretty well in line, and then you do it over and over again. And you develop muscle memory so that even though you're reading the music, your, your hands are moving without your interference almost. It's, it, and this muscle memory in terms of extending the metaphor to, uh, to meditation is for me that over a long period of time now, I've been practicing every day and I have uh, achieved something like a calmness and and pointedness and clarity of mind so that when the calamity, the inevitable calamity of life in the world arises, I have some muscle memory. I have some, I can play the tune even though it's not, it's unfamiliar and disliked. I can still get through the song uh, or the lament in, this, in, in the cases that we've been talking about. So that's all I had. Thanks. Oh, no, thank you, dear. I, I just wrote down inevitable calamity because somebody else yesterday, I heard this other great line. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, a hero is a person who is 
immovably centered. I'm not immovably centered, but I am more centered than I would have been without the years of practice. And what I know when I'm not centered is I am flustered. Now I need to pull it together before doing something. Um, so going from Ralph Waldo Emerson to, um, I, I was uh, teaching with my friend Sharon Salzberg last week, and she reminded the group that um, in the story of the Buddha, uh, uh, in the story of his sitting down under the bow tree on the night that he said, I'm not getting up until he's enlightened, um, and then was assailed by the forces of uh, anger and fearsomeness and erotic um, um, temptations that uh, he sat through them all with his hands in this gesture on the on the ground next to him. Uh, I, you know, I, it, it would be on the ground, and he is said to have said. Uh, to the forces of calamitous, fearsome things that are happening, is that I uh, I see what you're doing, Mara. I see your armies, Mara, and I am not afraid. And Sharon was saying that's the most beloved of the mudras of the Buddha that you can you can sit down in the middle of everything and say, okay, this is what's happening. I'm not afraid. Uh, I two things came in my mind at the same time. One thing was that over the years, as I've taught that to people, because it touches me so much, I, you know, I think it's a legend. I mean, I don't think he sat down under a Bodhi, Bodhi tree and put his fingers and said that, and that the forces of Mara that were, I think it's a metaphor. We all have forces of Mara. We're all in our lives, wherever we're, so to speak, sitting. And things happen that frighten us. And we, there are erotic temptations. You could, do, you could do this, you could do that. Whatever erotic, you could feel better by doing this or this or this. And we all have the possibility of saying, I'm not afraid of any of these because I can't be tempted. And I can't, I can't be tempted to confuse myself with erotic, uh, confusing lusts, and I can't be tempted to uh, arouse to fight because I am immovably centered. Uh, that they, uh, in the story of the Buddha and cartoonish pictures that, that uh, tell the story, he is sitting with his mudra, his, his finger sign, and all these forces are galloping through the air over him on on horses with beasts with uh, arrows and and spears and uh, erotic images. And here he's sitting. And in the story, he is said to have spread out a field of loving kindness around him. Everybody knows the story. Do you know the story or no? No the story. Anyway, he is said to have radiated out from around him a tremendous field of goodwill, of loving kindness, which vanquished any of those, all of those temptations so they couldn't get anywhere near him. 
and uh, they said when he when he stood up in the morning and said, "Now I have understood really what is the cause of suffering and what is the antidote to it, the end of suffering," that all of those uh, fearsome images and temptations and scary things just disappeared and all fell to the ground around him and, and the world was covered with flowers. How many people have never heard that story? That's the best story we've never heard. That beautiful is they have children's coloring books with pictures of that and the ground is covered with flowers. I don't think it happened, but I've been fond recently of saying it doesn't have to have happened in order to be true. That's in my new motto. It doesn't have to have happened in order to be true. If something means something to you, then uh, and and whether it actually took place in in three dimensional time doesn't matter. If it's true, it's it 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 keeps I'm sorry alive. Um, I'm fine with that. Um, it's a useful story. That's a legend. It's a useful story. All the religions I know are based on stories that you can tell your children and tell your grandchildren. I wanted to say something else. Oh, this thing of I am not. You know, I I see your uh, I see your armies, Mara, and I'm not uh, and I'm not afraid. That particular image reminded me of, um, I was thinking about whether that's actually equanimity or whether it's wisdom or what it really is. Uh, I was thinking of this other Zen story of a marauding band of outlaws comes into a, uh, a, a monastery and all the monks have fled because they heard that this marauding gang was coming and only the uh, abbot was there sitting on his cushion and the chief of the marauders said, um, uh, don't you know who I am? How come you haven't fled? Don't you know who I am? I could run you through with a sword in a minute uh, without blinking an eye. And the Zen master says, and I, sir, could be run through by a sword in a minute without blinking an eye. So is that equanimity or what is that? I wanted to tell that story and I wanted to tell the other Zen story, but the Zen master who said, yes, it's true that my son is dead and death happens and I am very sad. Uh, and which of those Zen stories is appealing to you? in terms of uh, not maybe not appealing to you but uh i like the zen master who cried anyway because um, maybe because i don't want to not feel it when my people die or my friends die or my hopes die or my concerns for the world take over i want to have feeling i want to be able to say uh, I wish it were otherwise. So I was thinking about that. And I was, I was, this was 
before I heard any news this morning that was likely to be confusing. I was going to tell you about an article I read about uh, decision fatigue. Uh, is, that, is that a new term for anybody, decision fatigue? This is somebody sent this on one of the psychology websites. It says the average adult makes about 35,000 decisions a day. Is that think of <laughs> people are saying no? I think we well probably when we decide what shirt we're going to put on or whether we not want jelly on our bread. If we count all of them, maybe there's thirty-five thousand by the time we finish. The average child makes three thousand decisions a day. I am on this psychologist who wrote this said I am unable to find the estimated number of decisions the average clinician makes each day. But if we stick with the 35,000, 35, it's certainly a lot. Many of those decisions for clinicians will be made on behalf of their patients. So there's an added importance of having solid decision-making skills. No one can be fully conscious of every decision they make. Many decisions are just doing what we always do. The alarm clock rings, we turn it off. We put our feet in the slippers. We go head towards the bathroom. That's the morning routine. You don't have to think what I should do now. You just do it. Um, our, many of us, our decisions are on autopilot. We're not even aware we're making them. When people in one study estimated how many food decisions they made in a day, they estimated far off the mark indicating that they probably made around 15 food and beverage decisions a day. In fact, people make over 220 decisions a day, but we're not aware of it. We just, it's exhausting to be aware of every decision in our brain, having, having accommodated to that by making some decisions automatically. The more choices we consciously make a day, the harder each one becomes because each decision takes energy. We develop decision fatigue, a state of mental overload that reduces our capacity to make wise decisions. So that's what I've got all underlined. The whole point of meditation uh, in Buddhism or in anything else, I think, but definitely in mindfulness, is to be able to make wise decisions. People say, I, I, I think I've said this a lot, if I say to a group of people I haven't met before, uh, who knows what mindfulness is? People will say, oh, I know. It's uh, uh, knowing whether you're breathing in or breathing out. And it's not that. It's knowing what is arising right now in this moment. Not only what's happening, but how do I feel about what's happening? And what, what do I think about what's happening? They're two separate things. Uh if I hear a news, if my if my daughter calls and says, turn on the TV, the uh, district attorney of the Southern District of New York is on TV saying something important. I already am interested in it. And so I've heard it. I got it. It excited my mind. And you turn on the TV and you hear stuff and you hear it and you understand it and feelings arise in you and thoughts arise in you. And you all the time deciding what should I do, but that's a lot of stuff going on. I I usually have my uh, my fog globe. I wonder 
if anybody has seen me get my fog load. This is a tourist thing in, in, in San Francisco for people who live at a distance and don't know that the iconic picture of San Francisco is fog. So if I do that, you can buy a snowboat globe in other places, but in San Francisco, you can only get a fog globe because we don't have snow. So what's going to happen? Who knows what, are you, what you're going to see when the fog goes down? Who thinks they know? Put up your hand if you think you know what's going to be there. What's your guess? Should I let it stay and you all look at it? Almost. Almost. Did you think right? How many people thought right? <laughs> Is it important? I have it up here. Both to talk about that it's so easy to confuse them. It's so easy to confuse the mind. And to be able to talk about how frequently the mind gets confused and it's not what you think it is. If I drive along the freeway and I see a big lump along the side of the freeway coming up on the side. I often have the feeling, oh dear, a deer is a deer has been hit because there are a lot of deer and they get hit. And then I drive where I've passed it, and it's a bag of um, leaves that maybe some workers on the uh, on the on the highway have left on the side. But big lump, and I get frightened by it because I think it's a deer, and I think I'll feel badly. So before I know it's a deer, I feel badly. Anybody had that ever experience? You see a lump, and you know, and it's a valuable thing to be able to make a decision. Um, I, I was reading, I guess I was reading Yuval Harari about the history of people, the history of the world. And he said that decision about is this a... Um, is this a sack or is it a dead deer? Or more importantly, is that big orange lumpy thing on the other side of that stand of trees, is that a huge orange boulder or is that a lion? And it's extremely important as a, as a species to be able to tell the difference between is that an orange boulder or is that a lion? And so we probably startle when it's an orange and boulder. Just in case it's a lion, you know, you could find out later, phew, it's a boulder. Does that make sense to you? See a big orange lump standing? I think Harari is the wrong reference for it. I think it's um, the anthropologist from uh, um, Stanford, whose name I forgot. But here we are on the... Um, many people don't know how many decisions, but... We're having to make more and more. Should I go to the store now or wait until next week or have it delivered? The more choices per decision, the more exhausted we feel. 
faced with so many decisions, consciously or not, we we make the impulsive choice so as to not to go through the laborious process of considering multiple angles and consequences. It's a really it it really is talking about the difficulty for physicians because you have so many uh, people to see to make decisions faster and faster. She ends up by saying something like, our mothers were very wise when they said, don't make an important decision on an empty stomach or a bad night's rest. So, but also we are really in a time when we are prompted to make bad decisions or to make impulsive decisions just by the onslaught of, um, of news. I had one more thing that I was going to say about the news as well that I noticed yesterday. I don't have, I, I used to be years. I had the New York Times delivered every morning. And I stopped doing it because I, uh, I stopped doing it because I thought that's true. I didn't want to use up so much um, forests with the paper. So I read my news online in the morning. And Yesterday morning, in the morning, well, I saved that especially because it's actually a little lighthearted or in a day of not lighthearted news. I printed it immediately out because uh, the New York Times sends me in the morning a whole list of important news, breaking news. So one of the, these are five breaking newses, four. Hurricane Fiona has knocked out power to all of Puerto Rico. Millions of people have been ordered to evacuate after Typhoon Nanmadol brought torrential rain to Japan's southernmost main island. A powerful earthquake killed at least one person in Taiwan yesterday. Nearly 100 people have died in a border conflict between Kyrgyz, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, according to reports from Reuters. Not all of those are, you know, one, one person might have died in Taiwan in an earthquake, but you don't know even, there's such a barrage of stunning news that the overall, it's hard to take in. It's hard not to be able, it's hard to focus. Those are not, it looks like, um, like one of those, uh, multiple choice tests where it says which of these statements is not so important as the others. So the one about maybe a person died maybe in an earthquake in Taiwan. I mean, it's important to that person, but next to thousands of people are flooded in Pakistan. It's like the the, the input of stunning news is really causing, I think, I, I don't know, but I think it's causing people not to be able to be able to properly process how do they feel about this stuff. And on that point, yesterday I read, uh, again, it was many, many years since I read um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And this I really do want to suggest to you. Do you know more than 12 million copies in print. Do you, how many people have read this? Victor Frankl, a lot of people. 
So I don't have to tell you, Victor Frankl was imprisoned in a um, uh, concentration camp during the Second World War. And incredibly, he survived. His family did not. And uh, I'll read you one little part of it. And he, he involved himself the whole time with thinking about what he was going to do when he got out. He had written a book that he had did not know immediately that his family had all been killed, but he did learn that when he got out. But that he was there, and he he had recently uh, written another book. He was a uh, he was a psychiatrist, at least a physician, and I think a psychiatrist. And he had written a book, but not published it. And he tried to recreate it in his mind, and he kept reciting it to himself. It was something that he was going to do next. And he felt like the like if he had let his mind slip into how terrible, and it was terrible, his situation was that he would see people around who would die for lesser reasons than the malnutrition but that he kept his mind active because he had a purpose. I can do something that'll be good for other people when I get out. Because then he de developed a therapy that had to do with what gives your life meaning. And it was a big deal at the time of the therapy of it, they put this out because, and, well, we'll go up to that later. It's completely a turnaround. He says at some point, well, they put a white flag up in the morning and they opened the gates and they said, this, you know, it's over. You can go out if you want. Uh, he says, let me read you this. This is good. Life in the concentration camp tore open the human soul and exposed its depths. It was surprising that in those depths we found only human, we again found only human qualities in their very nature, that human qualities in their very nature were a mixture of good and evil. And that so, and it made a difference of the guards and it made a difference in the people. He said that finally they, they open the camp and they go out and he said, the next day, he and other people went out and we walked out of the camp and we walked around. We came to a meadow full of flowers. We saw and realized that they were there, but we had no feelings about them. The first bark of joy came when we saw a rooster with a tail of multicolored feathers, but it remained only a spark. We did not yet belong to this world. In the evening, when we all met again in our hut, we said secretly to each other, tell me, were you pleased today? And the other replied, feeling ashamed as he did not know that we all felt simultaneously, truthfully, no. We had literally lost the ability to feel pleased and had to relearn it slowly. On the next page, it says, one day, a few days after the liberation, I walked through the country past flowering meadows passed for miles and miles towards the market town near the camp. Larks rose to the sky and I could hear their joyous song. 
There was no one to be seen for miles around. There was nothing but the wide earth and sky and the lark's jubilation and the freedom of space. I stopped, looked around, and up to the sky. And then I went down on my knees. At that moment, there was very little I knew of myself or of the world. But I had one sentence in mind, always the same. It's a sentence, it's a, it's a, a biblical sentence. I called to the world from my narrow prison, and he entered me, answered me in the freedom of space. How long I knelt there and repeated this sentence, memory, I can no longer recall. But I know that on that day, in that hour, my new life started. Step for step, I progressed until I became a human being. That way led from the acute mental tension of the last days of the camp, from the war of nerves to mental peace. Then he went on to talk about it and went on to teach the therapy of meaning when he was out from there. But making the point that the ability to be able to say, I like this or I don't like this or rejoice, the ability to, re the, the, the ability to rejoice or the ability to mourn must be something that gets developed from when we get born and we don't have it all the time. Um, and that when it's when we are too imperiled and too terrified and too traumatized, we forget how to rejoice and how to mourn. The question of how long do we mourn is an important one. But uh, it depends on how you think about what mourning means. The difference between saying, oh, I wish dad were here today. He would so love this. And being done in by that. you know, Because I have, you know, I have a lot of times when I think I wish he were here. He would so love this. But I wish my mother and father were here too and other people were here too. And you get used to them not being here. I think it made me more sensitive to everybody's mourning something. Maybe the one thing I want to say extra, and then I'd, I'd love, love to hear what other people are thinking about. I've been thinking about all the years since I was teaching or even studying Dharma, which is now about 45, that in the beginning, it seemed to me that the most important thing was learning the, the Four Noble Truths. I'm sure everybody has heard, but I'll do it again. That, uh, here's, here's how it's written by my friend, Tony Bernhardt. That life comes, first, as life comes with pain and unpleasantness. It just does. Somebody said it earlier, the normal challenges of life. It comes with pain and unpleasantness. It doesn't mean it's all painful or unpleasant. It means it comes with that. Well, what did uh, Jeff said? He used that great phrase, the inevitable calamities. Something's going to happen next. And I often am quoting my friend Gil Fransdahl, who says the definition of equanimity 
is uh, okay this is what's happening let's see what happens next let's see what happens next which reminds the mind that there's going to be a next because when something really overwhelming is happening you can't imagine that there's going to be a next because he can't stand this or it looks so terrible when we've decided it's all a lost cause everybody who's a political activist thinks there's going to be a next I have to think there's going to be a next to do whatever activism I do. I think, by the way, the teaching Dharma is an activism. It's a way of saying looking out for other people is what matters. First noble truth is life comes with pain and unpleasantness. The second noble truth is dissatisfaction with the pain adds to the unpleasantness something happens and then you, they don't want it to happen and then you make it worse by saying this shouldn't have happened why did this happen uh, i'll get even with him my friend sharon salzberg calls it editorializing on the news the news is something happened and then the editorial is that can't happen that's not supposed to happen i'll fix them now i'll never do this that the second arrow story, when someone shoots you with an arrow, you take out the arrow. You don't say, hmm, I wonder who sent the arrow. Why did they do that? Why should I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get back at them. The third noble truth is it doesn't have to be that way. That suffering in the mind stops when we get it. That, that if, if life it gives you something terrible to deal with, there's nobody to be mad at. It happens. Being mad about it doesn't make it better. Pushing it away doesn't make it better. Be able to say, active, being an activist might change things. It might make it better. But you can't change if a storm has come to Pakistan where there are literally thousands of people are flooded out of their homes and That's big news. What are they doing? And where, who's taking care of that? And not that I can or you can, but I can think that's what I want to pay attention to. What can my country do to take care of that? What can they do to help? What could this world do for each other? If the whole world said suddenly, wait a minute, this way that we're just continuing isn't going to work. At this point, if the globe is going to succeed and survive, everybody has to take care of each other. It could be otherwise. So if calamities happen, we make them worse. It could be otherwise. And the fourth noble truth is we can train the mind so we can do otherwise and train it by teaching it morality and right speech having work that people can do that doesn't jeopardize themselves or the planet were worse. They really were aware of what needs to be done so that they could make wiser choices. I was going to start on a, uh, this morning's talk in a more upbeat way. Well, 
musical. I did a more upbeat way. I hope it's upbeat way. I went to the opera the other night to see the new performance of Antony and Cleopatra by John Adams. So there's a lot of discussion by is it very good or very bad or it's very different. But anyway, in the end, everybody dies and and quite terribly. And it's a beautiful scene. And it's amazing music. And uh, I went with my elder daughter. At the end, I was really, I, I was moved by it. Uh, and uh, I held her hand at the, you know, for the last five minutes while everybody is killing themselves. And says, you know, it's, it's just a play, you know, but they're singing beautifully and it's very sad. And when we were leaving afterwards, I said, uh, and I was a little bit weepy afterwards, I said, uh, uh, how come you uh, you don't feel sad? Or how come you're not all shook up from this? And she said, well, you know, from the beginning, everybody, nobody made any wise decisions. Uh, you know, and really, <laughs> I mean, it's a piece of art, it's a story. But from the outset, nobody made wise decisions. They say, well, why don't we just conquer these people? Oh, okay, let's go conquer them. And why don't you marry this person? Because then you can own more of the world. Okay, let's do that. From the beginning, nobody made wise decisions and everybody ended up dead. But, you know, in the spirit of it, it was amazing singing and amazing music. But he said, just a series of bad decision-making. So I thought, you know, I'm going to teach Dharma on Wednesday and I'm going to say the reason that we practice mindfulness is that we'll do good decision making. But that all of these are wise decision making and wise mindfulness and wise concentration, which are the principal parts of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the ability to know every moment uh, not every moment, but every moment that you're paying attention and doing things. What am I doing? I'm in this moment. I'm talking about things that really interest me to talk about. So I'm excited to be talking. I'm excited to be looking at all of you in your houses and what you're doing. And I'm pleased that everybody smiles or waves or something. So I know that the, uh, there's an exchange of good feeling. Uh, I feel good. My body feels good. Nothing hurts me. All of that I know in this moment. And I'm not distracted. And I will feel better um, after class than before because my attention will have been more pulled together from having been concentrated for two hours and having had an interchange with live people because you are live people you're not in the room with me but you're live people a friend of mine said there aren't really four noble truths it's actually one noble truth uh actually i think this is my friend tony bernhardt who said the one noble truth is don't make things worse that life is difficult to begin with and that if you live it wisely, then you live it well. Don't make things worse. Think before you do things. Figure out, am I, is what I'm about to say for everybody's benefit or not? 
I thought in keeping with doing things in a way that doesn't cause distress, we would look at the Metta Sutta. The Metta Sutta is the Buddhist teaching on impartial kindness. And in the last year, I've been teaching this for 40 years. And it's a translation, of course, from the Pali. So, and it's been translated by many translators. And when I listen to Buddhist scholars teaching about how they translate, it's like every kind of translation. They have to sometimes make it a little bit this or that. All translation is absolutely imprecise because there's a meaning in the sound of the word and all of that. But people interpret as they go along. And there were parts of the Metta Sutta that I, I have read hundreds of times with people. And there were parts that I didn't feel right about. So I just reinterpreted it. So this is not as the Buddha is said to have said it. This is how I am said to have said it. So I wonder, maybe we will we'll read it together and then see if anybody sees what got changed, notices a change, and how you feel about it. So you all have it in front of you. I would like to invite you to read it together with me. And you're not, but you'll only hear me because otherwise we couldn't make out what everybody was saying. But I'd like to encourage you because it's up on the screen to read it with me and see how you feel about it. I'm interested to notice that I said how you feel about it, not what you think about it. So that's the see. <laughs> <laughs> Just to give you a heads up. Let's go. Okay, here we go. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be straightforward and gentle, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a parent protects with their life their child, their only child, just so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, free of addiction to sense desires, is not born again into this world. I wonder if anybody has anything they want to say about it. I hope some people have something they want to say about it. 
I noticed that the word mother had been changed to parent. Uh, and that jumped out at me immediately. Uh, the rest of, of it seemed to be uh, the same meaning, but with easier language. Because uh, if you read the traditional Metasutta, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, difficult to, to grasp. But your reinterpretation of it was uh, made, it, made it a lot more uh, easy. Well, thank you very much. I'm hopeful. I, I put off doing that for a long time because there are in other animals, there are some animals where the father bird sits on the nest while the mother bird goes off. I think in the penguins, the penguins, um, the, the males stand on the, on the ice with the, on the egg for a long time and the mothers go out and, and come back. So it's, it's not so universally uh, the mother whales knows to swim on the side of the uh, baby that's kept protected from the waves. But one thinks about mothers and babies and as caregivers. But I thought maybe it was time to change that. I didn't know, so I'm interested to know how you feel. Victoria, what do you think? Um, there are lots of things that I think, because I've been struggling a lot with anger lately, and how that is sort of singled out among, I mean, ill will, hatred and ill will. I mean, there are the usual, you know, the defilements. But um, I, I, I don't know, somehow in the way it was, it was couched, I, the, this radiating outward, sort of infinitely, I suddenly realized how the anger can, um, you know, has the opposite, it's, it's contracting. And so this, this totally expansive spaciousness, which I think is, is, at least for me, is the goal of practice is to, is to constantly expand and be spacious. And, and I love the, to me, it connected with the, um, the Gil Fransdell, what's going to happen next, this sense of uh, curiosity, and um, sort of expanding to see the big picture. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you very, very much. And bon voyage for tomorrow. Thank you. It's only for three days, but I love New York. <laughs> Give it my regards. <laughs> I will, to Broadway. <laughs> yeah. So I, I started this morning, actually, usually I do look at the news as you do. And I was actually instead grabbed by Biden, who was speaking in front of the UN General Assembly. And um, I was really moved by it. And in reading this particular part, let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings? And I think out of his own capacity to be with all the grief 
that he has had in his life that has allowed him, he, he has used it, he has found the meaning in it, and that has allowed him to be as kind-hearted. Is he perfect? No. And he is one of the more kind-hearted leaders I think we have on the planet today. And this whole piece, it was interesting starting the morning, I don't remember her name, who lost her husband. And this whole piece about grief is just profound in these days. Mm -hmm. And I have a sense that some of the terrorism, whether it's overseas or domestically, is out of what I would call unmetabolized grief. Mm -hmm. People's lack of capacity or lack of willingness to just allow it, just feel it and see what's next. So those words jumped out at me this morning. Thank you very much. Carlita, would you just put the name in the in the chat, Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda, and uh, people can Google it for themselves. For years, I carried it around everywhere I was teaching so I could read it. And the point in that poem is if the whole world stopped for a minute and said, looked around and said, what are we doing to each other? It would be, what are we doing? We're killing ourselves, our children, each other. What were we doing? It's written in Spanish. The Spanish is Akeadase. And the English is keeping quiet. Okay, Dale. A couple things jumped out at me. I, I really like the uh, word uh, ease that you used, to, to be at ease. I don't think that's in most of the others. And that felt good. I liked the general tone of it a, a great deal. It was more accessible and, and real. And something else jumped out. I mean, there was an article recently, I think in the New York Times about how, in fact, you know, we, we're expecting parents to sacrifice for their children and that it's natural. And this was an editorial in the New York Times and we were saying, no, that's, that's, it's not natural. That a lot of people do not sacrifice for their children and that we take it for granted that, you know, parenting skills are just inherited and that people need help um, to really raise their children properly and to overstate this thing about how natural it is to sacrifice maybe a little bit of wishful thinking is well it's, it's it's a very good thing that you point that out also because on the one end it's easy it um to slip into not clear thinking if you see lovely photos of um, whales protecting their babies next to them and if you watch uh you know, the videos on TV of, of giraffes having babies and knowing to take care of them. Because I, I do know the impulse to care for a, something that's needy, like a newborn or a small child or an elderly person, isn't inborn in everybody. And uh, I know a woman who for many years, as an inmate in the woman's high security penitentiary in New York, who was herself fulfilling a long sentence, was in charge of a program for women who come into jail, women who are incarcerated, who are pregnant or 
have a child, uh, just had a child, can keep their child with them while serving their time in a separate ward in a separate section to have two years with their child to bond with it and more important to learn how to relate to it and take care of it and learn bonding because alas many people who do terrible crimes who were in prison did not have uh that kind of experience before that and i mean i feel terrible about the whole prison system and all of that but at least the awareness is there that they can reteach people to take care of their babies and to feel what wasn't born into them or what wasn't brought out of them when they were born. There's so much to think about, you know, when I think about opinions I've had about that are facile opinions because I've just always had them and I haven't thought about them. One of the things that I'm interested in, well, thank you very much, Dale, by the way, and we didn't have a chance to talk about a friend of mine who, like myself, does not put a lot of emphasis on rebirth. Lots of people think, well, parts of, part of Buddhism is believing in rebirth, and the Buddha said, but uh, there are many people who, Buddhists, uh, Buddhist scholars, not Buddhist only contemporary scholars, but going back, who say, you know, that's, that's an old... Um, that's a, a Hindu idea. It's not really the Buddha said that there's nothing there and emptiness and all that. And every once in a while, which has been my experience with it, I, people say, why are you teaching about rebirth? Because I don't have it. It doesn't resonate with me. But somebody sent me an, uh, an article this morning, a friend of mine who is a neuroscientist, who also it doesn't resonate with him. And he sent me an article, I am ruffling through my papers, but uh, a young man who apparently at age three started to chant ancient Buddhist suttas. And as time goes by, has been chanting more of them. And how did he know that? <laughs> and, and the person who sent it to me uh, is a good friend of mine who is a neuroscientist, as I said, who had the opinion that it's not it's not a viable neurological anyway uh and i thought to myself uh-oh i'm going to have to do uh by not clinging to fixed views the last line of the sutta is the pure hearted one by not clinging to fixed views and i think to myself wow i certainly have some fixed views so maybe when i'll see you all in 3 weeks i hope uh, I hope you'll be there. I'll be there. And uh, maybe I'll tell you another view about what happened with that. But I think of my whole life, if we all thought about what views we have that don't change, that we can modify. And it's so much easier to not have to modify a view to say, well, you never know, you know, maybe it's this other way. You know, and I don't have to fight for my old view. That could also be true in the politics as well. I'm just seeing that we're at 12 o'clock, people, in California anyway. So may you be well, and may all be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And I'll see you when I see you, I hope soon.